It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. I'm here with my dude, Araspina, who, as you all know by now, is a CompuBox operator, fellow fight history file, and we're here to do a true crime episode today, which is, you know, our mix of boxing history and true crime. Aris, what's up, man? How are you? How's everything, my man? Doing all right, dude. You know, we're just... uh. I'm geared up, man. I'm I'm ready to go. This is always uh, a treat, you know, in terms of discussing history and stuff like that with you. And then, you know, just remembering stuff that really nobody else seems to remember. I love that stuff. So our bread and butter, my friend. Um, you know, it's uh, one of those things. It's because that boxing is the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to these crazy stories, especially ones with um, guys like you just said, they're not as familiar to fans of the mainstream. So that's where we come in. Yeah, and I think that that's like a, a a a good kind of segue to remind people when it comes to the true crime stuff. You know, I, I think that it's difficult to remember at times that like we're not doing this because we're taking any sort of pleasure in anybody else's pain or any of this icky stuff. We don't like the fact that this stuff has happened, but that's a big part of it is that we're trying to kind of. Uh, just remember things that have largely been forgotten and fighters that have largely been forgotten. Cause we have done some fighters like Trevor Burbick, for instance, that is very famous. A lot of people know Trevor Burbick, but we also have talked about other fighters who are not well-known whatsoever or their stories aren't well-known. So in any case, you know, that's, I think largely what we're going to be talking about today. Um, <clears throat> everybody knows the Kronk gym name, Manny Stewart, Emmanuel Stewart, one of the founders of the kind of present day Kronk uh, gym like concept or whatever. And I think that that's uh, how a lot of people know Kronk gym from Detroit. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Fighters, a couple fighters. I mean, this could really be the first of a mini, uh, a many part series of fighters who came from or fought through Kronk gym and just kind of had a really tough time coming out of the gym or in, while in that gym, uh, largely, I think, because of where it was located, not because of, you know, the Kronk is cursed or anything like that. Uh, that's that's kind of long been one of those urban legends going through boxing. But the fact of the matter is Detroit's a pretty rough city, dude. You know, and that's, I think, the the backdrop here. That's what makes it tough. Absolutely. And when you think of the Kronk name, um, you know, everybody, first of all, just goes straight up to like Tommy Hearns, or you think of uh, his very first world champion, Hill McKenzie, obviously his reclamation project that he has with Lennox Lewis, like things like that. You know what I mean? Like everybody just has their, their, their favorite, their favorite fighters, first ones, guys that fought out of the Kronk gym, but like, you know, those are usually the mainstays, but 
you got to remember Emmanuel Stewart and the Crown Gym was thriving, especially before he became really big with Tommy Hurts. Like Tommy was his first superstar and the one that catapulted him to become a legend and an all time great as a trainer. But, um, you know, the body of work that he left behind also too, including a lot of guys that either became world champions for a brief moment or never really reached that level for whatever reason or another was very, very vast. You know, um, Stewart before he became a top pro trainer, <laughs> was a huge, um, had a huge amateur stable. That's what he was really known for. And the bustling amateur scene of the 70s that we discussed before, where you were literally fighting every almost every other day of the week and just, you know, tournament after tournament, competitions, uh, the amount of like competition that was out there, how stiff the competition was, how deep these divisions were. Everybody was scrambling, boxing was really popular. Uh, Detroit was thriving, Detroit was booming. And Stewart had a really, really good stable of fighters. And because of that, today we're gonna, you know, highlight a few of the lesser known ones. Dude, yeah, you that's <laughs> I would have a tough time summing it up better than you did. Um, we've we have on other history shows talked about the reasons why there was this uptick in popularity, especially in amateur boxing, which as we know acts as a sort of farm system or like a feeder system for the pros a lot of the times. So when the amateurs are very healthy, it's almost kind of like in a few years, you could reasonably predict that the pro scene might uh, kind of kick up a little bit. And so as we saw in the wake of the 1976 Olympics in particular, where the U.S. did fantastic and there were a lot of really great stories that came out of there. We talk, we've talked about the Spinks brothers uh, very recently and Ray Leonard, et cetera. And so uh, after that, that kind of really helped the momentum of amateur boxing and so the Kronk Gym, which was actually founded back in the 1920s, uh, but it was in the basement of Detroit's oldest uh, rec center on the southwest side of the city, which has generally been considered a fairly beaten up part of the city. Uh, but as you said, Manny Stewart really takes this amateur this chunk of amateur fighters. Uh, and I mean, that's really where the fighters you're talking about as pros, the Tommy Hearnses and whatnot started out as amateur stars in Detroit. And so by the year 2000, 2001, <clears throat> Kronk has had more than 50, five zero, not 15, 50 amateur champions. Of those 50 amateur champions, about half had turned professional, a little over half had turned professional in one between them, more than 40 separate world championships. I mean, that that in right. and of itself, that's, that's extremely impressive, obviously. But what, you know, we're talking about today is, unfortunately, because Detroit, I mean, not to get too much into politics or other history, because that I think is going to sideline us too much. Uh, Detroit used to be a very bustling, working class town. My dad actually born in Milwaukee, but grew up in Detroit. So I remember hearing stories about Detroit and the car factories and whatnot and other kinds of manual labor type of jobs that were nonetheless very prevalent and uh, big factories where people could get jobs and shit like that, that abruptly shut wow. down. And so these places are now really rough. And or if if they didn't abruptly shut down, they started outsourcing jobs or they started cutting jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So Detroit is one of those kind of Midwestern or Great Lake area cities 
that saw a large-scale deterioration among America's working class and felt it really hard. And then it's also now kind of like a stereotypical city that people point to in the U.S. as, as you know, a, uh, uh, I guess, a great example of that deterioration, Flint and Detroit in particular. They're just not considered good areas, a lot of banded houses, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't really need to get too far into that because people can, you know, people I think have known that for years now. Um, but in the 1970s and 1980s, Detroit was one of those kind of urban centers or whatever that the deterioration really, really happened rapidly. And so there was a lot of crime um, in, in any case in that area this kind of beacon, you know, it's, it's another stereotype. I don't want to just start like talking in cliches and shit, but you did see Cronk Gym and these other rec centers as places where younger kids could go and get discipline, could go and be basically taken off the streets and be given shit to do. If it wasn't boxing, it was some other sport or some other game. And on top of that, a guy like Manny Stewart, again, not to lean too hard into the fucking stereotypes here, but he probably to a lot of these fighters was in a sense, a father figure or like an older brother figure, whatever you want to call it, a guide, um, a male guide or a male figure in their life. And so, or, you know, at the very least, some form of stability. <clears throat> That's why a, a large part, why Manny Stewart he was obviously a brilliant pro trainer, but as an amateur trainer and as like a, you know, a beacon of hope in the community, as somebody who was on a much larger scale helping youth in the community, that's why he was beloved. And that's why, you know, he was more than just Manny Stewart. So in any case, uh, because of Detroit's deterioration, a number of the fighters, and I mean, and there were so many fighters who came through the Kronk gym, but a number of them just had crappy endings. And so a lot of them, man. And it's, and like we said, because like you mentioned too, with how many champions and how many big names that came out the Kronk, so many fighters that came out of there that actually did turn pro are like completely forgotten or like weren't even known because of that, because with names that you just said, like the um, the aforementioned names that I had, like Hearns, uh, Kenty, Lennox Lewis, that came much later, obviously. Um, a young Michael Moore, who was terrorizing people in the day. Um, Milton McCrory, Jimmy Paul. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. You, you have the guys that we're going to bring up right now. You know what I mean? Like, that their careers quite didn't pan out for one reason or another. And because of that, things just kind of, you know, fell off for them. <clears throat> a guy like uh, Bernard Superbad Mays, for instance, you know, there are a number of fighters. <clears throat> you mentioned like, uh, you mentioned a lot of the more famous fighters, but they're also where we can do an entire, like I was saying earlier, this could be like a first part of a, of a series just because of how many fighters were kind of snake bitten. Uh, Darius Wilson, uh, uh, Steve McCrory, Superbad Mays, who I just uh, mentioned, Duwan Johnson, uh, yeah. Leslie Gardner, etc. So there were already kind of signs from the Kronk gym that this had that this there was bad stuff. When we talk about the amateur champions, though, Daryl Chambers is one of the more successful amateur champions. He had five Golden Glove titles and five AAU. 
amateur athletic union. You know, that's, that's an acronym, acronym where we now don't see nearly as much. And it might see NCAA don't see AAU nearly as much anymore. Um, but he had five gold gloves. Uh, AAU champion back then was very, was a big accomplishment. That was, it wasn't quite golden gloves, but it was almost kind of like, you know, held almost in the same regard. Totally. And so he had five golden gloves titles and five AAU titles. Daryl Chambers was definitely one of those uh, fighters who uh, was still waiting on an end. Thank goodness. He still has a lot of time to, turn around his his own personal story but nonetheless had a ton of talent and saw an awful downturn well chambers is like you said man in the uh in the early 80s by this time he turns pro in 1981 um Kronk was already a steward was already established at this point as like one of the rising stars of trainers um tommy hearns at this point had obliterated pedo cuevas in 1980 um, Hilmer Kenty had become Kronk's first world champion by knocking the hell out of Ernesto Espana. So at that point, you know, Stewart was rising high. And at, when, as this was going on, a lot of his uh, former amateurs were now starting to turn pro because they were mature enough. And um, with the 1980 Olympics being canceled for the USA, a lot of these fighters who are hoping to cash in on the 80 team or, you know, something around that um, were kind of in limbo. You know what I mean? Like, you know, are you going to wait another four years for the 84 group? That's, that's a lot of time to be wasted before you can potentially turn pro and make a lot of money. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. it, that's the old leaving money on the table. You know, fighters always, that's what they feel, you know, that pull. Totally, totally. And for, and for that to happen, especially in 1980, when amateur boxing is still really hot, but it's reeling a little bit because of the unfortunate plane crash that happened and where the world is, you know, going on with the hostage situation, other stuff going on out there that like that there was a lot of politics and subsequently USA didn't wasn't involved. So a lot of these um, amateur standouts that Stewart had chambers, probably near the top of the list, they turned pro and chambers did what a lot of those Crocs fighters did when they first turned pro. He primarily fought on a lot of cards at the Cobo arena. Um, sometimes on Hearns undercards, Kenty undercards, whatever it may be, but they're always on packed houses. And yeah, in and around Detroit or, you know, in and around other places in Michigan fought a couple times in Vegas, but it would always be at like the lower level casinos where, you can like build your record up and part like not at somewhere like Caesar's palace for that matter, but like somewhere else like the Aladdin or um, uh, the, the place they used to hold um, Wednesday fights every, every single Wednesday. I forgot what, I forgot what place it was, but a casino that's no longer there. Yeah. That, I think that you, you summed it up really nicely, dude, because a lot of that kind of Olympic and amateur stuff that was happening in the late seventies and early eighties that really fiddled with a lot of these fighters who were, uh, you know, I, I set that up, I think fairly nicely with the whole 1976 Olympics shit, but then there were a lot of fighters who were inspired by their success who then going into 1980 figured out probably way too late. Oh shit. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to have a chance to do that now, you know, that catapult to fame, that Ray Leonard had that catapult to fame that Leon Spinks had, et cetera. All of these fighters that went on to become superstars largely on the back of their Olympic success 
these other amateur fighters who were doing fantastic. I mean, five golden gloves, gloves titles, you know, that's marketable as shit. And then on top of that, potentially going to the Olympics and then having that kind of springboard is massive. And then losing it is just like, ugh, holy shit, dude. So yeah, there probably were a number of fighters who were fast tracked to the pros because of that. And Daryl Chambers probably one of was one of them. Um, you know, he, he fought, uh, to a 12 and O start as a professional before he actually fought on the undercard of Trevor Burbick, who I brought up earlier versus Muhammad Ali. And I mean, you know, the drama in the Bahamas do like, we, we talked about that during Trevor Burbick's, uh, uh, episode where we talked about it as a true crime yep. about him as a, you know, kind of a, a victim. That was of one of our crime. earlier ones. Yeah, and uh, it's a lot of fun, and a lot of people seem to like that episode, I think, overall, because I didn't know his story. But we also, since we talked about Burbick's fight with Muhammad Ali and just the whole, I mean, the literal drama, not just the drama in the Bahamas, but the actual bullshit surrounding that fight and everything that happened going up to it. But then on top of that, that fight, at least according to uh, Chambers, was responsible for on that trip, Daryl Chambers allegedly met a woman who became his like main cocaine connection. And so and that, that catapulted into, you know, his career being a little messed up after a while. Yep. He started getting into dealing cocaine, according to him. But then he got scared or he just was wanting more to concentrate on his career. And so he turned to real estate and he had uh, bought some real estate, I guess, and was more or less going straight, I guess. Um, but right around this time, so uh, there was in the early 90s, there was a real drought of cocaine after the 80s because so much cocaine had been done and sold and then kind of cracked down on too. And crack has, was starting to be developed, et cetera, et cetera. A, a number of, and I, you and I have talked about this on different shows. You've talked about this and read about this too. The cocaine cowboys right around this time were a number of dealers basically stepped up and filled this gap and figured out ways to get cocaine and then distribute it. And Daryl Chambers was apparently among some of these people right around Detroit in the Detroit area around this time in the early 90s. So uh, Daryl Chambers, the, the feds started surveilling Daryl Chambers and sending people into the cronk, according to them, sending people into the cronk and trying to get them to bite on some, you know, drug deals and shit like that, because the cronk success in such an area, I mean, there's probably a large chunk of it having to do with racism, you know, straight up. Uh, in a fairly bad area, this one particular gym seems to be having a lot of success. And a lot of people tied to the gym are having financial success, et cetera. You know, that probably came into it. And the feds wanted somebody bigger from this gym, you know, as the, the story goes. But they concentrated on Daryl Chambers because what he started doing was using his real estate business to, as a front, basically, to, to launder money for his cocaine business. And so he got caught and sent to prison and he was in prison until last year, 2021. And, you know, before, before I'll touch on that too, his career at that point, cause like you said, he started out very promising. 
even though he was already starting to get into a lot out of the ring issues but like it you know it wasn't like um it would have been interesting to see if his career never really had like you know any any stops or like really spot um bumps in the road because i think that's what really started spurning his out of the ring activities as well because for instance in 1983 he ends up fighting a fighter by the name of uh, bobby joe young if you're familiar with the name bobby joe young that's because you probably know him as the guy that gave aaron Pryor his only l and a very fascinating weird exciting so many words to describe that fight but um bobby joe young was you know a, uh, i would say i wouldn't say a top contender back then but i mean a guy that clearly had a ceiling but he was a very very strong puncher and a game guy too he could be outboxed, he could be hurt, and, you know, he could be swollen up, but he had an extremely strong right hand, and he could, you know, was plucky, he could hang in there. Um, by all accounts, Chambers was outboxing him pretty handily and was on his way to a decision, but like I said, Young had um, extreme power in his right hand and was able to knock Chambers out. So that was the first, like, you know, big doom right there. So Chambers' career never really recovered from that. Um, he went back on the circuit and, you know, won a bunch more fights in a row and such, beating no, no, no one of like, you know, serious note or anything like that, but just still staying active. Again, fighting on different undercards, sometimes for bigger events, usually though, just on random Detroit shows. Um, he ends up finish, uh, finishing his career against another, per another guy that um, <clears throat> you'll recognize his name, obviously, for different reasons. That's a guy by the name of uh, Luis Santana. If you know that name, you probably know him for the fiasco trio that he had with Terry Norris in the mid-90s. But um, at this point, Luis Santana, before he took acting classes, um, was a rising contender, and this fight took place on the Hagler-Hearns undercard. So this was probably the biggest stage. Excuse me. Yeah, it was the Hagler-Hearns undercard. So this was probably the biggest stage that uh, Chambers had appeared on at this point in time. Um, this was like big one. You know, the world was watching and I just realized I misspoke too. It wasn't Chambers who had fought on the undercard of Burbick Ali. It was Hearns and he had gone with Hearns to the Bahamas. So I apologize. Yeah. I wasn't, I, I got my wires crossed there. But again, like Hearns always brought an entourage with him and definitely going out there to fight in the Bahamas on an Ali undercard. Stewart was definitely going to bring some of his people there to keep them all sharp and spar. Um, you even saw that footage, that very, very sad footage of Hearns sparring with Ali who, just stumbled around and had no business being anywhere near a ring at that point. But, um, so yeah, he fights Luis Santana and Santana in a pretty impressive victory. I've never seen it, but Santana, excuse me, um, knocks the hell out of uh, Chambers and stops him in three rounds. And that's the end of his career. And once that happens, that's when he starts going full fledged into his other life. Yeah. He, uh, you know, for actually for, three or four years maintained a pretty solid career it's not like he even you know retired with 22 and 2 that's an that's a highly respectable uh career especially in the 80s where yeah, totally they had records at that point too were very deceiving if a guy came in and he had a record of like 12 and 8 and stuff like that he was still probably a hell of a good fighter hadn't quite gotten to the point where it was like you had a you have a loss and you're fucked you know like you're you have a loss and you're you're shit you're damaged goods you know 22 and 2 is still a, a highly marked and 16 knockouts to boot you know that's a highly marketable record in in the 1980s but it, by that time he had just figured out that you know boxing was just that was just something that was not going to take him to to the top but he was 
more likely to get to the top messing with drugs, unfortunately. And in the Detroit, especially in the eighties, like you said too, as it started uh, falling apart and uh, into urban decay, more or less with um, the various gangsters that were starting to take it over. There was a lot of stuff. They, they get featured on television all the time. You know, you had the best friends gang, um, you had different ones out there. Stewart, who I'm not going to say he was like, he was deep in the streets or anything like that, but it wasn't like he, he had no affiliation with anybody. All the, all the Detroit gangsters and people came around the gym. They, they knew Tommy Hearns. They knew everybody. Very popular guys. Everyone was always lurking around the gym. People knew each other out there. You know what I mean? And so Chambers, <clears throat> Chambers just kind of fell into it. Yeah. And I'm and I mean, uh, that's not to say again, I think just to emphasize too, that it wasn't anything necessarily wrong with Kronk Jim. It wasn't anything. No, 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 no. It was the time and yep. the place. Totally. You know, and, and there were a number of people who I think that uh, a lot of people have heard the stories like about Tommy Hearns driving his nice car up to Kronk in a not very good neighborhood and being able to just park his car on the street and not worrying about anybody fucking with it. Cause he's Tommy Hearns and like, what the Absolutely. fuck is anybody going to do, you know, but also because he was beloved. Take care of the champ. Yeah. Because he was beloved, you know, a lot of people from the hood. Yeah. Anyway, when people we've talked about this and other true crime stories too, when people in the hood make it big, it's like they're heroes, you know, and that's not just in the hood. That's I guess everywhere, but perhaps felt a little bit differently in the hood. And Daryl Chambers was definitely, at least for a brief period of time, one of those guys. But yeah, unfortunately, the early 90s brought about bad stuff for him and led to prison. But I guess, like I said, he got out in 2021. And so he's still got some time. There's still some time not to fight again. That's not what I'm saying. But still some time to, you know, turn it around. But here's the thing, you know, the case is interesting because it was involved in a cocaine bust that also involved, and here's a key name right here, Donald Curry. You know, it was a three-way one where it was, it was Daryl Chambers, Donald Curry, and um, Stanley Longstreet, I believe. So, yeah. And how it goes is that Curry beat the case, Longstreet decided to talk, and Chambers was the one that ended up taking the rap for it all. ouch dude yeah total ouch <laughs> rough i guess that's the, the also demonstrating what happens when you don't have representation you no know? you know and it's and and it's like um and they were trying and the thing is is that like it was one of those things where you feel like the da was just trying to get was trying to get was trying to lay it on somebody they had a case going over there and they tried to offer Chambers, you know, chances to lower his way too, because they felt that Stewart was involved in some way. And exactly and the feeling of it and Hearns too. They thought this was a much more bigger. They, that's what I was saying is they wanted somebody bigger. They thought that they some did. bigger name was there. And so they kind and of just went after who they could. So what they did with that was that they, since they thought that Stewart, cause they, like I said, they knew that guys like Maserati Rick and um, Demetrius Holloway, from the aforementioned gang I mentioned on uh, the best friends gang, they would be all this. They would be at um, the gym sometimes at the crown gym visiting or visiting Hearns or, you know, Hearns' buddies or whatever, because Hearns is entourage. And there was just people around. Like you said, it was just the time of the play. It was just the time of the, uh, of the era. People just kind of mingling, yada, yada, yada. But at that point too, so they, at, 
they, you know, so like you said, they wanted to try to find somebody bigger. And so what they tried to do was they went to Chambers and they offered them, you know, like they do with a lot of people, hey, we'll lower your deal if you ran out the bigger people in the thing. And so what they wanted was they wanted to get Chambers to wear a wire and then go up to Stewart and Hearns and try to find, get some info, uh, information out of them, you know, uh, undercover, and then they can go nab them because those were the big fish, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And needless to say, now I think that uh, we can we can safely say also that you know a lot of this stuff is coming straight from like law enforcement reports and stuff like that, which we always got to take with a grain of salt, if not a fucking heap of salt. So, but so looking at it right here, this is what the DEA offered. They said they offered him sixty months, thirty six months in a camp, witness protection, the whole deal. Yeah. yeah, not to, not a great deal. <laughs> oh, <laughs> especially for something that's not true. And they're just trying to get information out so they can just get something bigger than what they have. Yeah, going, yeah, going hard at just one of them, basically. Yeah, that's, we've just trying to make an example out of whole, somebody. Yeah, dude, and the, and the whole criminal system, the criminal justice system and the way that goes about it, how messed up it is. I just, you know, it's, to his credit, he didn't do that. You know what I mean? He stood his ground and did it. It obviously didn't work to his benefit because he got put away for a long time because of the surf, because of it all. But um, because he had to be the one to take the fall for it, you know. But while in jail, he did turn himself around and, you know, made something of himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, he had a, a pretty big uh, turnaround in jail, actually. And I mean, he spent a significant amount of time in jail. But uh, yeah, I think that definitely uh, at least in that regard something of a success story like and like i said still time to turn a lot of things around for him oh totally man you know it's one of those guys that when he first got into jail he was still dabbling in the outside world or whatever but he was able he said as a lot of people do he found religion once again and was able to turn himself and devote himself to that and um since he got out of jail i believe you said earlier it was what 2021 he got out yeah last year yeah, last year he's he's been doing really well and you know been motivating and stuff on the streets. So credit to him because a lot of people, um, a person that we'll probably talk about one day on a future episode, um, Ricky Mo Ricky Womack, for example, who a guy that was from a little bit of a he came from a different um a few years afterwards, after Chambers. He's from the 84 class, but a person who was deeply troubled, had a lot of issues. And when he finally got out of jail, unfortunately, he couldn't really beat the demons and um, other things that was, you know, going on in his life. He couldn't adjust. So credit to Chambers for being able to do it. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's not just for him, too, but for anybody who is able to. Anybody who's able to do that. Yeah, anybody who's able to make that U-turn, that's significant. And that's something that should be commended for sure, because the just about everything stacked against him just about anything excuse me just about everything is stacked against uh people who spend a significant amount of time in prison and wind up having to get out and trying to make make something of their life um but yeah that's i i like i said i i wish him all the best and i hope he is able to continue forward doing good stuff unfortunately the next guy that we're going to talk about Dwayne Thomas is one of the fighters who did not make it out he definitely did not get an opportunity to turn stuff around for himself. 
unfortunately. And I think that Dwayne Thomas might actually be the best fighter of the bunch that we're talking about right here as far oh, as totally. you know ability and as far as how far he got you know and according you know if you talk to certain people from the cronker after you ask them Stewart said he was one of the hardest punchers of the of the entire team that they had he was also you know like everyone had serious accolades for him but he's another guy that kind of fell between the cracks you know, Dwayne Thomas is one of those guys that became a champion for a, just a brief moment in the mid-80s. Um, the fight that he had is significant in its own right because of how he won the title and the way it went about and the person that he beat for it. But, um, you know, once he, once he lost it, he just kind of, you know, fell off into the sunset and he became forgotten really quickly until he resurfaced um, in the late 90s, early 2000s with plans of a comeback and then he did have a comeback but like as you went to say that ended up tragically for him because he was killed soon after that but before i get to that let's talk about him you know winning that championship right so at this point now we're talking what year is this uh, around 1986 right 1986 1987 and at this point now emmanuel stewart is obviously very established right he had tommy hearns he had milton mccrory um, um, Hilmer Kenty, a host of others already yet, you know, top contenders and stuff like that. Like he, you know, Stewart is doing his thing. And um, at this point in time now, as he's, um, he has another guy like Dwayne Thomas. Dwayne Thomas is a little bit more low profile than these other fighters. Like his main step up fight that he had, he fought Sumbu Kalambe, and criminally, criminally underrated fighter and lost a decision. No shame in that. Lots of people lose to Calibay, including um, an undefeated Mike McCallum. So whatever. But for the most part, you know, he's beaten some good guys. If you look at his record, um, he's coming up. He, he, was, um, he was able to beat Nino Gonzalez, who was a former uh, USBA champion around that time and a couple of others. So, you know, the only times he really lost, like I said, he lost to um, some McCallum, but he lost to Buster Drayton. Buster Drayton is um, one of those fighters from back in that era that, Again, even though he had a bad record, his bad record didn't belie the talent that he had. He was a bad, bad man and became a champion himself. So for the most part, you know, for a contender of that era, Dwayne Thomas had a solid record. All that being said, and I know that was a lot that I said, all that being said, who he had to fight for this vacant belt was a lot to handle because he was going up against a person who was not only a beast, that was his nickname, John the Beast Mugabe. It, he actually got by uh, Callum Bay. So oh, he, he did. Excuse me. I'm sorry about that. I thought he lost to Callum Bay. Okay. Well, and well, Callum Bay is one of those guys where, like, you know, can could be kind of spotty, but nonetheless, you know, like you said, in my opinion, and we've talked about him before. Uh, we talked about him when we spoke about some of the greatest African fighters of all time. Sambu Callum Bay is definitely, definitely among them and a very underrated fighter, but got, you know, got by him on points. But even so, I think we also talked about the other guy that, that we're about to mention, John the Beast Mugabe, is among, you know, the greatest and definitely most exciting African fighters of all time. And John Mugabe had just come off going to fucking war with Marvelous Marvin Hagler. That's what the, I'm saying. The man. fight before this. And I mean, that's, that's its entire can of worms because he might have you know had some bolts loosened in that fight almost certainly but you know like i mean 
that's still man he no one no one including tommy hearns had taken Hagler and just given him absolute hell like that like you know hearns obviously hurt him in the first round and mm-hmm. went to war with him but like no one went uh like what was it 10 11 rounds that mugabe did toe-to-toe with Hagler before he was finally broken down like you said he collapsed in a heat but before then man he was landing punches that would have taken down any other person on the planet like Hagler he was a hard man hard and you see it too those right hands just boom 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 and you know and Hagler was hitting granite so that doesn't count but still no one is able to was able to sustain that type of pressure and yeah, you know, it might have been slightly, yeah, like you said, a couple of bolts might have been loosened after that fight, but he was still going to be a substantial favorite against that then at the time unknown Dwayne Thomas. Yeah, and, and compared, I think, to, <clears throat> excuse me, compared to some of the other fighters, gosh, excuse me, <clears throat> like Buster Drayton, that loss to Buster Drayton was like, <laughs> You know, uh, we were just talking about an era where losing one fight didn't necessarily mean, you know, it didn't mean the end of your career or anything like that. But at the time, Buster Drayton was not quite journeyman status, but he was somebody where if you were like an undefeated upcoming prospect, you should probably get by Buster Drayton. And since he didn't, you know, I think that they probably had to do a little bit of a reset with Dwayne Thomas to be like, damn, all right, if you're going to lose to Buster Drayton, you know, if you're going to get stopped by Buster Drayton, then maybe we need to kind of pump the brakes a little bit. And so, you know, <clears throat> another thing that Manny Stewart was uh, really good at, and not just at, at uh, being a trainer, but he managed a lot of these fighters too. I don't know that he managed all of them, but he managed a lot of these fighters. And so I think that just about any fighter who turned pro under Kronk, he managed, but, as a manager, he knew what he was doing and he knew how to guide fighters. And so you could see that in Dwayne Thomas and guiding him back toward a world title with John Mugabe from that loss against Buster Drayton. You know, John Mugabe was a guy who was not quite big enough for middleweight, but at 154, a fucking beast, dude. And so, yeah, dude, probably a tough or uh definitely tenderized a little bit by marvelous marvin Hagler, but then definitely taken out by Dwayne thomas in three rounds and so in a, in a weird fight though that's the thing that makes yeah it wasn't like he beat him down it was just it was it, kind of a strange you know and that's what makes it more like um more memorable than anything like yeah it was a big upset that he beat mugabe because at the time like you just said mugabe came off was just coming off of the heels of an incredible war with marvin Hagler. So anybody, anybody who um, is getting stopped by Buster Drayton shouldn't be, you know, should be lunch meat for John Mugabe at this point, you would think. At, at, but that wasn't the case, you know. Um, wasn't like Dwayne Thomas was completely dominating the fight. Um, but, <clears throat> or anything like that, you know, it was kind of rather mundane for a few rounds. But what ends up happening is at one point, um, Mugabe suddenly turned, it was around round three, Drayton threw a combination, excuse me, not Drayton, Thomas throws a combination, and Mugabe turns around, grabs his gloves, turns his face, and covers it up there screaming that he was thumbed in the eye or something, and that he can't see, he can't see, and when he turns it down, you see it, his eye is all swollen and kind of like looking a little gangly, like, you know, totally something happened to it, and it's bizarre, it's totally bizarre, you don't really, you know, you don't see a thumb, you don't, you know, there's plenty of replays, you don't really see what's going on, but Mugabe clearly can't continue. 
And without really seeing a foul, there's no instant replay back then, obviously. Wayne Thomas suddenly becomes world champion. I mean, take it as, as you can get it. You know what I mean? Sure, there's going to be a little bit of asterisk over it, but it is what it is. He became champ. And then there's this photo that you see in magazines. Poor Mugabe. He looks so bewildered and has no idea what's happening. And like his eye is all kind of like messed up. And you see the photo of him like this kind of, you know, like his, you know, he just, he, he's like bushwhacked. He's just, you know what I mean? Poor guy, like you said, he's probably in searing pain from his eye. He doesn't know what's going on. He got cameras flashing him right in the face. Everything is just going, you know, must have sucked. But regardless, Dwayne Thomas did become champion. Yeah, dude. And <clears throat> I guess uh, at least it says on BoxRec uh, that part of the irony of it or whatever, part of the bad thing of it was that Mugabe had requested that they have gloves with the, you know, that we would not see this these days. Every glove that you would use in professional competition has the, like the, the thumb attached, you yeah, know, attached it's, thumb. it's sewn to it. So that shit ain't coming off. But back in the day, you could have the gloves that open, you know, you could open your hands and shit like that. So that's why back in the day with a guy like uh, Fritzy Zivic, Henry Armstrong, totally. you talk about them using their using their thumbs a lot or getting thumbed or taking thumbs to the eye, giving thumbs to the eye, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you don't really hear about that these days. It's something that just doesn't really happen nearly as much. You think Mugabe was trying to do that because he would be able to like, um, I don't know, use it in a way to measure, to, to measure somebody like kind of like, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? Like, kind of like hold the position, whatever, whatever he could do, because whatever it was though, it came back to backfire on. Yeah. Needless to say, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was one of those, uh, Jack Dempsey, Gene Tunney, you know, should have should have gone back to the neutral corner. Shouldn't asked for the fucking, you know, the the rule, and it backfired on you. Situations, but and you know, Mugabe's career never recovered from that. Like totally, that was you know, he did subsequently become world champion a couple of years later, but the aura was gone after he lost to Hagler, and then after the the bizarreness of this fight with Dwayne Thomas. Um, he never really recovered. Like I said, you know, he ends up becoming world champion a couple of years later. Um, even that fight's a little wonky because um, Rene Juco, after he gets dropped, his leg is all mangled, his ankle is like leg or something gets broken. And poor, you know, Arthur Mercanti, who had no idea what was going on, decides, oh yeah, you can continue. And one-legged Juco hops around there terrified as Mugabe comes after him, rampaging and stops him. Um, and then he lost his title immediately afterwards to, uh, to Terry Norris. So, uh, yeah. And, and so after that fight, you know, uh, I guess basically the, the story for Dwayne Thomas was that after winning against Mugabe and winning the title, according to just about everybody in the gym and according to everybody around him, he got lazy in training and started getting, you know, which is a tale as old as time. Yeah, some fighters become very disciplined. Other ones get a taste of the high life and, you know, fall on the wayside. Well, and, and they say, you know, we, we've heard that, that saying, well, when you win the title, you become 30% better or 50% better, you know, make up some fucking number. You know, there's always yeah, yeah. whatever. But there's also, like I said, tale as old as time when you win a championship. Uh, what what was it that Hagler said? It's tough waking yeah, up in the morning. Bed sheets. Yeah, and with silk bed sheets or something. Yeah, or silk pajamas or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, totally. 
Oh, fuck that. I tried sleeping in silk sheets once and they were awful. So don't do it, people. It's just Same, terrible. Man. I don't see the appeal. Ugh, fucking felt awful. But in any case, uh, <laughs> the point being that, you know, he apparently got lazy, apparently, you know, started just kind of cutting corners or whatever. And yeah, that's he winds up losing to Lupe Aquino, who Lupe yeah. Aquino, you know, definitely a good fighter, but not a great fighter by any means. Um, and somebody who probably, you know, if you were good, sh- you should defeat him. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, just man. In general. It, was, it was a weird era where that title was getting, was, um, was like being like played like hot potato at that moment. Because like you said, Aquino was a good fighter. He had good names under his, under his belt, like um, Davey Moore and a couple of others. But he, again, had a ceiling. If you should be, you know, if at a certain level, you should be able to beat him. But instead of that, like, instead it moves on to Gianfranco Rossi. Um, Rossi at this point, soon after, would become a long-reigning champion in a very unmemorable reign. But before this, only held the title for a brief moment. And he was able, actually, when Dwayne Thomas was uh, going to challenge for the championship, he ended up challenging Rossi, and Rossi uh, beat him. Yeah, by that point, like you said, uh, Gianfranco Rossi was not, you know, not what he kind of later became. But he actually had a um, record-breaking junior middleweight career. Somewhat unremarkable, but nonetheless record-breaking as far as title defenses I think still holds the title or still holds the record. I should say doesn't hold the fucking for a title long anymore. Time. He was around for a very long time. Yeah. He's somehow on the hall of fame ballot, but that's neither here nor there right now. But um, yeah, that's, an, point, that's, <laughs> that's its own discussion. At, but at this point, it wasn't, you know, like we said, he was, he was still coming to his own at this point, even though he had a long career and Dwayne Thomas was clearly on the, uh, um, was clearly on the downside. And like you said, probably wasn't taking things seriously, just, you know, half-assing it. And, yeah, Rossi, you know, dominated him and stopped him. And at that point, Thomas's career was more or less finished. Yeah, he had, so he had gotten out, uh, you know, gotten out of boxing. He uh, basically, like you said, his career by this point was more or less finished. And after Gianfranco Ross, Rossi, you know, loses, he f- fights one time in 1989 and started getting into dealing drugs, according to, you know, most reports and stuff like that. Um, but had started also getting in and out of trouble. I couldn't really find a whole lot, uh, but it was clear that he had squandered whatever he had had was going bye-bye, but that in the early 2000s and late 90s, he had started kind of putting his life together, according to reports, and he'd started actually, uh, he was supposed to, let me read this back, he was supposed to begin working for Kronk, and he was going to start help setting stuff up for Kronk Gym in London, that kind of London wing. I do remember reading about that, that's right. Yeah, he was supposed to start helping with that. I it what in what capacity I don't know, but it kind of sounded like Manny Stewart or whoever it was that was in charge of that had like given him an opportunity to come aboard and you know get some work, uh, get him out of trouble or something like that. Um, but unfortunately, he had gotten back into dealing drugs, and that that kind of sucked him back in in the early two thousands. True, and he did come back for one fight, 
you know, at this point, um, we're talking very late 90s now, we're also talking 2000. At this point in time, a lot of fighters were starting to make comebacks, guys from like the 80s and 90s, because there was a few guys still active. You know, uh, Tommy Hearns, the main one. I think he was the main inspiration for a lot of these Detroit Kronk fighters to try to get up off their ass and think, okay, because Hearns at this point was what, cruiserweight? Yeah, I think that was the Uriah Grant phase. Yeah, yeah, that, that little late career weirdness. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> Hearns at that point was still angling for a title shot. Around 2000, before before the Uriah Grant fiasco, it still looked like that there was a possibility that Hearns was going to get a cruiserweight title fight at some point. Like, that's that's the way it was looking. You know, all he had to do was keep on winning. If he had beat Uriah Grant, chances are he would have keep on continuing. But again, that's that's a whole other story. Anyways, um, because guys seeing that type of success and knowing that they can probably bank off of that because Hearns was fighting very actively in Detroit, more so than like other places, they could appear on the undercards. That's why guys like Dwayne Thomas started resurfacing. Yeah, he resurfaced for that one fight against a guy named Abraham Bruno, apparently won a decision after about 10 years off um, at Joe Louis Arena in Detroit. So I guess, you know, he got to fight one last time. Um, and he probably would have fought more after that too, but yeah, most likely. I mean, he he probably would have, but unfortunately, in June, so a, a couple months after, uh, it was in mid June. That last fight was in April of 2000, and in mid June of 2000, he allegedly had gone into a party store, uh, or like some sort of convenience store slash party store in Detroit. And got into some quote-unquote minor drug dispute over cocaine with someone who, according to witnesses, was a known cocaine dealer. And then they both exited the store. And as Dwayne Thomas was exiting the store, he was shot in his torso, legs, and arms. And he died upon reaching the hospital or when he was at the hospital, he was declared dead. You know, again, that's it's extremely tragic, but with the circumstances surrounding and the people in your environment and stuff like that, something unfortunately can happen wrong place. I mean, even and just as randomly too, you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be like something that was a setup or anything like that, just out of the blue. And um, I, I, you know, when that, when that was mentioned back in 2000, when it happened and it was like talked about in the box and magazines, um, there was never like any like long stories or anything like that. You just kind of saw like their obituaries that you would catch in the beginning a ring magazine or ko and there's never really any details on his murder either they just said kind of what you said um he got into an argument with somebody some people said it had to do with drugs someone said that he was trying to break up a fight but regardless of what it was the circumstances remained the same they both stepped outside as he stepped outside as well he got shot and he got killed and that that stopped everything because um like you said a lot of people said that he was changing his life around um he had plans in the works to work with emmanuel stewart for uh, the cronk uh gym in london and other stuff that he was trying to work on plus this comeback that he had so there was you know light at the end of the tunnel to see but unfortunately you know those fate had other ideas and it's too bad too because like thomas not to not to cut you off really quick but like it's too bad because Thomas was one of those guys that clearly was a talented fighter and he had a cool, good story and a big win in the eighties and considering all the Kronk's history and all the other big fighters that have come on it, he's basically been forgotten. It's been well now uh, 22 years 
since he's been murdered. So when's the last time you heard anybody bring up Dwayne Thomas whatsoever? Ever. Yeah. Well, and, and again, just to reiterate, you know, anybody who's tuning in just now, just, you know, just happened to tune in like, you know, 30 minutes or whatever into the episode, whatever it is. And they're going, what the hell? You know, this is just to, to remember these folks, not to poke fun. Oh, totally not. not, not take not. joy in this whatsoever. It's just, this is what we do. And we've discussed that before too, man. It's our job to, to take the lesser names and the people that are kind of forgotten and, you know, shed some light on them for a bit. Yeah. And make sure we're not repeating these stories or as bullshit or, you know, uh, Telling yeah. people that that Billy Papke sucker punched Stanley Ketchel in the throat right before the fight, and that's why he lost. And repeating that shit for fucking decades, like a bad that would have been a cool story, man. I mean, when I read that as a kid, that was a cool ass story. Yeah, of course. You know, like I I read it. I'm I, I'm almost positive I remember seeing it on some sort of special and going, oh wow, that's crazy. Well, and then, regurgitated all these historians. Yeah. Not to not to veer off track really quick, but all these historians over the years that always like to be like really yada 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 to, you know about things and try to yeah. be really secluded in who they Let allow. Let me to. tell you, <laughs> they're the ones who repeat all of these. They're the ones who have been repeating all these stories and putting them in books and magazines and stuff over the years. So, yeah, and whatever. and so we just want to be as factual <laughs> as we can, you know, and and also make it fun, make it fun to remember, and yeah. But, um, you know, also to bring you back to that era, also to to emphasize, too, that like uh, almost none of these guys were like bad guys, you know, almost none of these people were like evil people or anything like that. But just to, to emphasize just that, man, Detroit was rough, dude, it's still rough. And at this in this it time is. period, it was it was a it was a tough, tough place. I've been to Detroit once for uh, to cover a fight. That was Ishe Smith against K9 Bundridge. Um, less said about that fight, the better. But Detroit in itself, I mean, it's true, man. That fight sucked. But oh, yeah, everything about it was just woof. I mean, the whole promotion itself was just a complete clusterfuck. You know what I mean? That wasn't even supposed to be the main event. That was supposed to be like the opening fight. I think the main event was supposed to be Kell Brook against uh, Devon Alexander. Instead, the first fight ended up being Jay Leon Love against Derek Finley. It's not one of not not one of Showtime's best nights. But what I'm getting that is that regardless of that card, and like you said, Detroit, that was my first time in Detroit. So my only time too since then. Um it was really interesting to see like how much love that city had. You know what I mean? They had a big mural even Manuel Stewart when you walked into the building and place was packed. Like they were they were there to support K9. And um like, you know, you can just tell the history of the sport and everything there. Like, you know, Detroit has mad love for boxing. And, like, you could feel it. You know, you pass by that giant Joe Louis fist that's downtown over there and all this other shit. Like, it has a heavy, heavy history. And Emmanuel Stewart, the, the whole crunk, they're, they're like, they're, they're holy. You know, that's, that's like a holy family over there. You know what I mean? Like, they're, def they're treated like, like royalty, as they should be, as they should be. And a lot of the fighters that still, you know, that are there for the event, everything like that, they're still treated with love. Like Detroit's a very, you know, I, I was really impressed by all that. So, um, it's, it's funny too, because we could go back decades and Detroit is definitely one of those cities that was a fight town at one time. And it's not nearly anymore, of course, but um, going back to <laughs> all the way back to the IBC, actually, yeah. um, there 
one of the one of the nicknames for the IBC at the time from a handful of writers who were, I guess, ballsy enough to call it something like this was Tentacles Inc. Tentacles Incorporated. <laughs> and one of the reasons why they called it that was because of their reach, because of the way that, you know, like um, like Hydra in fucking in the MCU or in Marvel comic books, where like the reach goes far, you know, spreads into everything. And in the IBC, Detroit was one of the places. So New York was obviously the the epicenter or like the place where everything was controlled from the International Boxing Club of New York, obviously. But then uh, when they had taken down the IBC, it was revealed that they had kind of like from New York controlled all of these places like Philadelphia, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, uh, you know, all the way down to Miami, you know, and there were a couple of other hand, you know, handful of places, but point being Detroit was one of the places where uh, you could reasonably count on every so often a bigger fight happening. And so, you know, it, it's not like that anymore, but yeah, dude, Detroit used to get big of, boxing love. I mean, think of a lot of the names too, besides like the Kronk guys that were mentioned, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, who has major ties to Detroit, Joel Lewis, you know. Um, right, yeah. Yeah, like uh, Brewster Center. You want to mention that? Like how big of a star was Henry Hank back then? Um, packing him in. Like it's, Detroit has a lot, a lot, a lot of history. It's, it's cool. Yeah, dude, it's it's pretty wild. But actually, the the last fighter here that we're talking about today. Probably on the, the most, unless it's uh, the least known out of the bunch by far. And believe it or not, actually, you know, he wasn't from Detroit at all. He was actually from the Buffalo area in New York, which it's which itself has its own. Uh, well, believe it or not, has its own boxing history, but it also has its rough parts, too. Um, I'm, oh, I'm Rick not, James. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not like a, an expert on Buffalo or this part of New York or right around the border. Uh, York, I mean, Rick, but, no, Buffalo is rough, man. Rick James talks about for one of his albums. I think after they said his second or third album, they said that he went soft. And before he before he made uh, Street Songs, the one with like Give It To Me Baby and a lot of those other hits, they, he said that he went back to Detroit, and not Detroit, excuse me, he went back to Buffalo, um, put on like a hoodie with a, with a hat over so people really couldn't recognize him. He said he just used to walk the streets all day, just absorbing everything, so he can get inspiration for that album because he had to take it gritty and be back to where, you know, his old haunts it's it's a different dude it's just a different kind of urban environment and i know that that's like the fucking whitest sentence i could have put together right there and as far as hell man <laughs> but I'll, I mean, like, dude it, I don't, i've never been to buffalo but i'll tell you what when i was out in syracuse near the hall of fame this past week it, it took at least five hours to get out there from new york city and by the time you get over there it still says there's like 100 miles to buffalo like you know yeah, my, it's really at the ass end of the earth yeah, my mom. Yeah, so I guess I'm just going to be talking about my family history on this episode. But my mom is from Erie, Pennsylvania, which is not too far. It's a stone's throw from Buffalo. And it's a uh, it's, in my opinion, having been to Baltimore, it reminds me a lot of the look of Baltimore in like the kind of like uh, more kind of like city areas, but not downtown, not downtown, but city areas and shit. And so, in any case, Buffalo, fairly rough. This is where this dude, J.L. Ivy, Jason Ivy, comes from. 
Um, and, you know, Jason Ivey, like you said, probably the least known of these fighters, but nonetheless, he held two national golden gloves championships and he had over, uh, well, I guess it's, it's tough to say because all of the amateur records are always reported unless they're taking, you know, uh, taking account of these really meticulously, which some people do, but he had about 200 amateur fights, like 180 and 18 or so was his record, which is a really impressive amateur record, you know, like that's, that's an extremely impressive amateur record, especially from around this time, taking into account the shit we've talked about on this episode and the amateurs around this time, but he moved from Buffalo uh, and the Niagara Falls area and joined the Kronk gym when he was only 16 years old and by pretty much all accounts, quiet guy, very intelligent, extremely nice guy, and somebody who was really easy to get along with. And, uh, you know, somebody who apparently Manny Stewart liked a lot. I mean, and you could probably say that about just about any of the fighters and a lot of the fighters that he spent a lot of time with. But JL Ivey was, by pretty much all accounts, nice dude. And... You got to think of this too. You just mentioned there's a really interesting fact. You said he's 16. Think about that. You move from Buffalo all the way to Detroit at 16 years old. That's some prodigy shit right there. You know, clearly Stewart saw something major in him and wanted him that he poached him at a young age to try to bring him over there and have him under his watchful eye at that point. You know, you only hear about that on rare occasions in, in other fields like music or something like that. Kind of like when. Tony, uh, Miles Davis heard Tony Williams for the first time and hired him on the spot at 17 or, you know, guys getting out of the NBA, going into the NBA straight out of high school, stuff like that. Like, you know, it's when they pan out, they pan out. Sometimes they don't. But Stewart obviously, obviously saw the talent right there and was hoping for a big star. Yeah, you know, he was he was obviously <laughs> extremely an extremely talented guy. And on top of that, grew very close to not only Manny Stewart, but Tommy Hearns, too. And he actually at one point was uh, supposed to, at least according to him, marry Louise Hearns, Tommy Hearns' sister. So he was, you know, became he he very quickly got into this, you know, Kronk family. Um, But the problem was, again, according to accounts, despite the fact that he was a very nice guy, despite the fact that he was, you know, quiet and fairly unassuming, he took a lot of shortcuts in training and just did not like to train hard was was not a was not somebody who was gunning for it in training. So you were starting to see a, a growing pattern with a lot of these guys today, aren't we? Unfortunately, yeah. And, I mean, and, yeah, it's. And it's not just to say this is just like, you know, designated for Kronk fighters. But if you notice, there's been a lot of guys who, if you go on Brock's rec and you look at their records and you see that they just had a whole hum professional career, and then you go and you look at their bio and you see that they had a crazy amateur career, two, three-time um, Golden Gloves champion, went to the Nationals, fought uh, in the finals of the Nationals, lost to usually a big name that you'd recognize today, yada, yada, yada. And then you look at their professional career and you're kind of wondering to yourself, yeah, how does this not, what happened? How does this not translate? And there's a lot of fighters like that. And not just ones that we've seen implode on, on TV and that you can be like, oh, it's another Yeah, we, we had a, a whole episode about it, like, like amateur yeah. busts or whatever it was, like the biggest busts or oh, whatever. Totally. So it's, it's interesting because like you see a lot of these guys, for whatever reason, they turn pro and they're just kind of like, well, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, 
uh, yeah, I don't know what specifically it was that happened with JL Ivy, but that's what everybody said was that he just couldn't keep it quite together uh, in training. And if you look at his career and I, you know, we generally, uh, we advise against this just because simply looking at the box rec page does not tell the whole story. However, you can kind of look at the trend and you can get a pretty good idea of what was happening in his career. You just scroll up and, you know, four fights in, he loses on points and, and uh, to a guy who's sub 500 in his career named Dick Fisher, never heard of him, probably never going to hear of him again. Seven, seven, exactly. one couple fights later lose to Erskine Wade. All right. Okay. At least, you know, we know we've heard that name. We know who that guy is. But still, he's losing this uh, decision a couple fights later. Ralph Aviles losing a decision again a couple fights later. You know, and it's like he's up and down in his career. He can't quite string together, but a couple wins. And they're not, and they're not bad fighters that he's losing to, like you said, either. He even had a couple of decent wins. Like Dwight Pratchett went on to fight Julio Cesar Chavez uh, for a championship. And um, Anthony English was a recognizable name to most people. But... Yeah, he was very inconsistent, and he wasn't getting stopped. So obviously, he was a good fighter. That he was one of those guys that could go to the distance and be reliable. But that's what he was starting to become, you know. And especially in an era when, in the mid '80s, when uh, you know the competition was so thick and was so heavy, and like you know, it took a lot for you to really scrape by to be a top contender. Um, it became that just as easy, as tough as it was to become a contender. It was just as easy to become a trail horse. And he was quickly becoming that, like a gatekeeper. Yeah, he he basically could be depended on to to defeat guys who were the very middling guys, but that was about it. And on top of you're that, you're gonna he, go somewhere you should be able to beat him. Yeah, and on top of that, he could potentially lose to them. Yeah. And so uh, that you just look at his career and you could see there's a lot of up and down, and that that in and of itself tells a story. Um, but of course, in 1986, where it starts to kind of fall apart for him, um, like I had said, he was planning on marrying Louise Hearns. And apparently, you know, despite the fact that he had had some kind of like up and down uh, success in his professional career, was still, you know, he was doing all right in his, prof in his personal life. Um, but it seemed to all fall apart in 1986. Why? I have absolutely no idea. But he was fighting a guy named Jose Vidal Concepcion in Pontiac, Michigan, and he lost a close decision. And he had gone over, and of the three judges, two of them were women, which in and of itself, especially even now, you don't really see a whole lot of fights where two of the judges are women. Why? Especially I mean, in I, the 80s. Yeah, I guess that's kind of crazy. But especially in the 80s, you wouldn't see that very often. Apparently, this was one of those occasions. And he lost the decision. And he went over, and he went like this, and went, bop, and it bopped, you know, with his glove bops yeah. one of the judges bop right on the top of the head <laughs> and then went after well, i shouldn't the, be laughing but i mean like it's a scene that you yeah yeah what the fuck i never even heard of that and then he went after and then the he other, tried to attack the other female judge yeah the, the other judge yeah. uh he went after the other judge and so that, those are the two that scored against him <laughs> yeah i mean just i i've never heard of that that's Look, unacceptable we've, we've seen, not cool <laughs> no totally not we've seen like you know fighters go crazy after losing a fight in the heat of the moment remember zab jude obviously attacking jay navy um johnny bumpus infamously losing his shit after uh, getting stopped by gene hatcher and attacking everybody within just feet of him after the decision was announced and going crazy but like 
you know, for for Ivy, yeah, the wheels were definitely falling off because that's, you know, you go out there and the first thing you do, you turn around and then try to like whack a um, a female judge. Like you said, the way you just kind of like that. Yeah, or, I, I they didn't describe it super well. It just said that they that he punched her on the top of the head. So I'm guessing he went like that. Hopefully not like that. I mean, that would be some. I mean, I don't know. Maybe don't she know. was bending down to pick up a pen or something. <laughs> yeah, and he I don't know. To hit her. Who knows what he did? Well, but. either way, unacceptable. Not fucking oh. cool. And then but after he, he took care of her, he went for the other judge. You can imagine yeah. her and that poor woman dies. <laughs> God damn dude getting calling security over yeah not fucking cool bro but that was kind of the the beginning of the end for him that was his second to last fight for whatever reason a bunch of reports uh right around this time were state that that was his last fight but that was not his last fight he actually fought Gennaro Hernandez Chicanito okay. who was 11 and 0 at the time and lost a decision so I mean but that that was that that was the end of his career um, and then, so, you know, moving forward a couple of years later in 1989, he's arrested twice, once for possession of cocaine and a gun and another for possession of marijuana. Stupid. Stop arresting people for weed. Uh, but according yeah. to, according yeah. to po- police report, uh, reports, which of course we always, always take with a grain of salt again uh ivy was a known drug dealer who wasn't liked on the streets but that sounds like some police ass shit that somebody be saying you know like i don't know about all that yeah he wasn't like i bet you he was like a low-level pot dealer too like probably yeah he probably wasn't even like that serious who fucking knows i have no idea because a lot of this is coming from police reports and they sound like they're just like talking him down so it it really i have no idea yeah he was on the pod and fucking anyway in 1990 uh one night in 1990 someone tries to shoot and kill jail ivy and apparently they missed and he does the denzel washington king kong ain't got shit on me you know can't fucking hit me they didn't kill me speech and then later on that night they the supposedly same person came back shot and killed jail ivy and for uh, a number of months, it was a big mystery. And like I said, it was a, uh, the police reports getting out were this, that he was a big bad guy. Nobody in the neighborhood liked him. Everyone was afraid of him. He was a big criminal. Sounds so, like the same thing we heard about Ruben Bell and countless others that we've uh, talked about on the show, right? Reoccurring yeah. theme there. And I mean, a lot of it is just not you don't know what to believe because that's the only place that the reports are coming from. And, and on top of that, you know, part of it is just that, you know, the streets don't fucking talk sometimes as, no, as should they? That's their business, right. As, as sometimes they should not. Uh, but unfortunately that's the only direction we're getting reports from sometimes, but in any case, it was uh, unknown what had happened to him for a long time and then finally they had caught a 19 year old dude named james moore jr who they had prosecuted for the murder of jail ivy there you go there's not a lot out there on it um no that's about the end of it really that's ivy is a a lot of those guys that you mentioned at the beginning of the show he kind of falls into that he falls into that bracket um there's a, a pretty famous i guess you would call it famous um advertisement that you would see in a lot of boxing magazines in the early 80s of Emmanuel Stewart and his Kronk Jim. 
and you would see, like I said, like Kronk Enterprises, right? And it gave you um, a list of all the fighters that he had. And not only did he have all his fighters, like you saw um, photos of the other trainers there, his secretary, all, you know, everyone that worked for Kronk, the whole, the whole company there. And aside from a few of the guys on that page, a lot of those guys that you would see on it, guys that you mentioned before, like um, David Braxton, and JL Ivy and Hurley Sneed, who actually did fight for a world title, um, and a you know, and a host of others. Um, Mickey Goodwin, who was one of the few white fighters that was on the Kronk team. Um, there was, you know, like th- those are just guys that are just kind of names, you know what I mean? Even another one, like a lot of people don't remember that. I think um wasn't um Dave Man Lee, wasn't he a part of the Kronk? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, there's a uh, there are a lot of fighters who don't get remembered nearly, you know, as much as they should, and these guys that we just talked about are among them. So, totally. I mean, um, hopefully, you know, and we're gonna have to do a part two, man, because like I said, there was a few other guys out there. Like um, Ricky Womack has an incredibly sad story, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people that listen to the show are are familiar with him and you know what happened to him and everything like that, but. It's still, it's something that has to be like, you know, retouched on because I think his death, it's been 20 years since, since his death. Um, yeah. You know, there's other fighters from the Kronk too that you mentioned. It's just, there's a lot, there's a lot of them. So. Yeah. There's uh, like you had said very early in the episode, boxing, unfortunately has no shortage of tragic stories and stories where, you know, um, it, it's obviously going to be some mixture of nature and nurture. There might be some sort of predisposed whatever uh, for a lot of these fighters and people to get addicted to something or to get into trouble in some way. I don't know. But also the common theme that we're seeing with a lot of them, too, is living in environments that are not kind, living in environments that are are real rough and that, you know, a lot of listeners might not know shit about those kinds kinds of environments, too. So it's uh it's also like you said I feel like it's some some responsibility or whatever for us to get it right and also to treat it with respect and to help you can't people just remember. go out there when you and, and and make your own narrative about these guys because that's not how you do it that's not right you know that's and that's not fair to their memories either when you do something like that that you just try to twist it and then give it to them and have your listeners listen to that and be like, okay, well, yeah, he was a super bad baddie who did a lot of bad things and bad people get shot. Oh, no, right. tell you. Right, Rude yeah, we're not, we're not pointing and laughing. People. No, yeah. no, that's bullshit. Nah, well, and, nah. and on top of that, you know, the, the Kronk name and legacy, it carries on now. Uh, and this is not, we're not being like paid or anything like that to do this, oh, no, but, totally. but just, to, just to kind of like move forward with what, the Kronk is doing now a handful of years ago where the original site the basement and the rec center where Kronk was burned down so they moved it to a new location and now actually in the last handful of months uh the Kronk brand which I believe is being run by John LePak not 100% but is they've actually started putting out a bunch of apparel like merchandise uh track suits jackets hoodies all that sort of stuff which I think is really cool. You know, if you want to buy it, great. If you don't, don't. But just in general, like the classic gold and kind of magenta, gold and red. It's probably look. the most iconic. That's probably the most iconic um, 
what's the word I'm thinking over here? Like brand or a color? Yeah, here? look or whatever. Logo. Yeah. yeah, logo it's, and boxer. Easy. It, it, you know, everybody loves it. Everybody loves a lot of the fighters that are associated with the history. So, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun, you know, talking about Detroit and a lot of these fighters, but we're probably going to have to revisit this. Totally. And, you know, um, if you had the chance to meet Emmanuel Stewart, I believe you said you did, right? I did, yeah. Yeah. Um, if you brought up any of these names to him, that aforementioned names that we talked about today, if you brought up JLIV to him, if you brought up Daryl Chambers. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. He would get the biggest smile on his face and would talk, you, talk your ear off for a half an hour until he got dragged away by somebody. Like, yeah. That, that's that's how it was, man. Like, he, he had a special, the thing that was beautiful about Emmanuel Stewart and anybody that knew him could attest to this is that regardless of what happened to his fighters, whether they had a fallen out or they lasted a whole career with him or whatever happened to them outside of the ring, he had a special love for each one of them. And you could tell if you brought a name up to him, like the, the smile and the look on his face that you knew it was genuine talking about those guys was yeah. unmatched. Yeah. He was a cool guy, dude. He's definitely missed in the boxing community too, for sure. Totally, totally. Well, I appreciate you uh, going over this with me, dude. Always a good time. Every yeah, single time. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if you listened in via podcast, please subscribe, whichever podcast or podcast app you use. Uh, but also, if you listen in or watched via YouTube, subscribe. Leave us a comment, rating, all those sorts of things. They are appreciated. Follow us also on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Knuckles and Gloves Podcast is there, but also we're on Twitter and also in individually on Twitter. Eris is there. Uh, Eris Pina as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor. I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. That's it, man. We'll talk to you all later. Hopefully see you there. And Eris, see you soon, bro. Have a good one, everyone. Peace out, everybody. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.